Hi and welcome to the Bright Shift Podcast. I'm Leila, founder of Bright Shift and your host. At Bright Shift, we offer online therapy, workshops, and meditation sessions. You can find us at brightshift.co. Today, we're going to talk about depression, but from a different angle. Joining me on this episode is Thomas Moore. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul, a book that we will also talk about on this episode. Thomas Moore has written 30 other books about bringing soul to different aspects of our lives, including our relationships and culture, deepening spirituality, harmonizing medicine, finding meaningful work, and doing religion in a fresh way. He has been a psychotherapist for over 40 years. In his work, Thomas Moore brings together spirituality, mythology, depth psychology, and the arts. In his youth, he was a Catholic monk and studied music composition. He has a PhD in religious studies and was a university professor for a number of years. His work has helped many people around the world to live more meaningful and soulful lives. You can find more information about Thomas More's works on his website, thomasmoresoul.com. The link is also in the description. Welcome to the Bright Shift Podcast, Thomas. I'm a great fan of your work and I really appreciate and admire your approach. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to us being able to explore uh, some work that I did many years ago, uh, but still is very active for me. Me too. Throughout the years, you have beautifully explained how important it is to integrate the concept of the soul or soulfulness into so many different areas of our lives. And this is really one of my favorite topics of all times. In your work, you have also talked about depression from the soul point of view. And depression, for most parts, has been viewed from the clinical and pathological aspect. And there's not been much uh, consideration of the role of the soul in it. But in your work, we see this unique and important approach that gives us a fresh and really different way of looking at depression. So I'm very excited to hear how do you define the soul in your work and what is the role of the soul in depression? It's very difficult to define the soul. I've been asked that question for 40 years, and I never feel I can answer it very well. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not, it's not something that is real and important, but it just it's, it's very mysterious, so it's hard to say exactly what it is. But I can say that it is uh, the deepest part of, this, of ourselves, goes beyond the self, the ego, the I, it... Uh, I think that most of us understand that that we have things going on in us that we don't control and feel a little bit alien to us. We have emotions that come into our lives that don't we don't really want necessarily or that we don't certainly control. And so there's there are things going on in the, the you know in the range of our life and in an interior way that traditionally for thousands of years have been called the soul. So the Greeks, the Greek word for that soul was psyche, which is like psyche, we would say today. So when we talk about psychology, it's psych, psycheology, what we mean is uh, something to do with the soul, but we don't take that seriously. So what I'm doing is not too foreign. You know, it's not foreign to uh, to psychology, and um, it's also something that has been talked about. The soul's been talked about, for, as I say, for two thousand years at least, by philosophers, psychologists, and uh, religious people. I think today a lot of people think of it, of it as a religious idea, but I don't treat it that way because uh, I've studied a lot about the soul and. Most of the sources that, that interest me are from philosophy and from, oh, I don't know, even art. Uh, so so that's, it's an old idea that uh, I think is very, very rich 
even though it's a, a little bit difficult to bring into modern life, where we like everything to be quantified and uh, and and high, tightly defined. Yes. So I'd like to read this excerpt from your book, uh, Care of the Soul, as it's very much related to my next question. If we persist in our modern way of treating depression as an illness to be cured only mechanically and chemically, we may lose the gifts of soul that only depression can provide. And in the same book, there is actually a chapter called Gifts of Depression. And this is really fascinating and interesting to me because most of the times when we approach depression, we usually want to know how we can get rid of it immediately. But in your work, we see this new approach where depression has a message for us and we can actually take something from it. And in the same book, you said your symptoms are the raw material for your soul making. If you are having emotional problems, don't automatically just try to get rid of them. Look at them closely to see what your soul needs. Symptoms are painful and in need of tending and refining, but they contain the essence of what you are looking for. So I like to know how can we work with the symptoms? One thing we might do is look at in the history of look at people that have been important in our cultures, um, that when you look at their lives, you you can't separate out the good parts from the bad parts. I mean, there were so many artists who were very depressed, many are suicidal and many who committed suicide, many really fine artists. We had a couple of my favorite poets, uh, Sylvia Plath and and uh, Anne Sexton committed suicide. And um, so their depression was intense. And we know in their lives, uh, Anne Sexton used to give a reading of poetry and then check in at a mental hospital, you know, for to, to recover. So would you say, you know, you can't separate that experience from her life. That's who she is. And so I, it's sad, and it would be nice if we could have helped her more. I, I, I always feel frustrated. I wish we could help people like that much more. But um, the fact is, that's who they are. So in a way, you know, you can't just look for the absolutely unblemished person, the person who doesn't have any problems, and say, well, that's the kind of person we want to be our artist or the person who's going to give us. Uh, their imagination, um, we have to look at them. Well, we also have to look at ourselves and realize, yes, my life is imperfect. I've gone through some bad times. Most people have gone through some pretty tough experiences in their lives. And those can be seen as part of what's going on. And so if you have this kind of a whole picture of yourself and don't try to look for the ideal or the clean, I think the hygienic, you know, the uh, the kind of healthy self, because nobody is completely healthy. You And if you take that further, you might realize that these experiences were very important for the people as they developed their creative work. And in fact, in the 15th century in Europe, um, Artists were said to have been born under Saturn, which was the planet or the god of depression. So people then felt that artists in particular had this weight of depression to deal with. That's part of their calling in a way, their work, to have to deal with that. And they also recognized, this is not my idea, way back then, you know, at least five or six hundred years ago, they recognized that uh, that depression actually is a channel to insight. That when you are depressed in, in those times, and the fact that you might be, at least in part, a depressive person, you might be more accessible. You might be able to be more open to inspiration than the person who hasn't had that experience. One reason is that depression takes you inward. And uh, and and forces you in a way to, 
to be a more inward person. And that's, of course, what a, what a creative person is often. They often have this intense inward life. And, and so in moments of depression, uh, as painful as they are, they might be able then to create in a way, develop into the kind of person who can be very creative. Do you think depression is a way that sometimes the soul chooses to kind of invite us to do the inner work? Yes, I think that's a very good way to put it. <laughs> invitation, I like that. What if you thought of depression as an invitation to do more inner work? Yes. But we, what uh, my colleagues and I often say is we go with the symptom or go into it. You were alluding to that. So um, we do that uh, because that is a way of, be, of going into that part of yourself that might be a bit wounded, but is for that reason might be more open to explore life in a fresh way. Because, you know, when you're happy, I, I always say, I, I've as a psychotherapist, I've never had anyone call me and say, life is so good, I need to talk to you. They never say it, they never put it that way. It's always things are really going bad, and so I need to see you. Yeah. And it's, it's a similar kind of feeling in yourself that when things are not going well, and you're feeling depressed, you are motivated to do some inner work, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of symptoms, I remember in one of your interviews, you mentioned that you were working with a man who had a habit of stealing. And um, you actually worked through this habit with him. And through that process, you helped him find his purpose in life. Working with the symptoms, trying to understand them is a really interesting uh, way of working with clients. I was wondering, are there any examples that you could give us uh, a client that you help them to find their purpose through their symptoms? I had a client many, many years ago who came to me, a woman who told me she wanted to quit smoking. And she said, I don't want any of this soul care. I don't want that. She said, I'm not interested in that. I just want to stop smoking. She said, can you help me with that? And I said, sure. Although I knew that to do it, we would have to explore things that were more meaningful. So the first session I said to her, I said, I, I just want to ask you, please don't stop smoking yet. You know, keep smoking for the next week so we can stay with us and see what it's all about. And that kind of surprised her because she thought we'd get right into saying, how are we going to get you to stop smoking? Yeah. I felt that something like that smoking that, that is interferes and it might be, you know, bad for your health. I mean, it is bad for your health. Um, that that would uh, that that would be a good place, like a doorway into that person's larger inner life. In other words, that would be a doorway to her soul. It would be soul work, even if she didn't want it. Absolutely, and that was fine with me. If she didn't want it, that was probably pretty good because at least there's some resistance there, some some engagement. I don't care if it's positive or negative. So what I did was work with her on her smoking. And one of the things we do with the symptom is we ask, we explore uh, many stories about the symptom. So you might go back in time, not to find the early roots of that symptom, but to, but to open it up to make it more, to, so that we can know more about what that symptom is. Like she might talk about her parents smoking all the time. And so it was just natural in her house to, to smoke. And right away then I'm saying, well, does that mean that you are living your parents' life still? Have you had a little trouble becoming yourself in relation to your parents? Because that's the story she tells. Yes. So you see how that opens up the symptom. It's working with the symptom, but it's not taking it literally. And we're not always trying to get rid of the symptom, not at all. Ultimately, if the symptom like this is something bad for her health, we, we might wish that ultimately that this work will help her uh, be free of the symptom. But for our work and the process of working on it, we're not going to try to, we're not going to treat it as the enemy. 
we're going to treat it as a doorway. Experiencing depression or any form of suffering in general is really painful and, you know, at times unbearable. But um, at the same time, experiencing suffering is something that we cannot avoid. So I like to know your thoughts about this. How do you think we can make meaning out of suffering or how can we approach it? Um, well, uh, I have, re I remember years ago when that book came out, I received quite a few letters from people who were uh, hospitalized for depression. And they told me how important it was to read that chapter about the gifts of depression because even though they understood that this is not something that easily goes away and i know as a therapist it's not easy because depression it gets a hold of the therapist too when you're working with it at least for me it did uh and it kind of it's it, that made it more difficult and it's like being in this dark cloud and there's no not much uh a view of, of being on the other side of it. Um, some people say that in depression, there are no images, but I don't think that's true. There are images, but they may not be what we think. Just describing what it's like, if it feels painful and miserable, that's, a, that's an image and we can work with that. And as I said in the previous example of the woman smoking, I might ask questions about uh, like, well, uh, have you known other people who are depressed? And, you know, did that have, has that had an impact on you? And those stories, the, the, see, therapy is, is almost all about story. It's about, and that's a form of imagination. So, you know, when you tell a story, you are being an artist for a moment. You are making a story. It's like you're being a novelist in a way. And you create this story. It's and it is a story. It's not those. It's not a series of facts. It's a story. So that uh, that lifts the the symptom into the realm of imagination. And at that level, we can do something, because you can eventually choose maybe to live a different story, or you may feel you may be free of it the more the story becomes detailed. And you get to see it for what it is better. I'm, I'm not saying, by the way, notice I'm avoiding saying understand it. I'm not saying you understand it. We're not trying to figure yourself out, figure people out and try to understand their symptoms. It's not that. We're trying to add more imagination to the symptom. This is this the psychology that I work with. I call it now soul psych, soul psychology. Um, is really rooted in the imagination. And so the finding the narrative is part of that. It's part of bringing this, and, and Jung discusses this a bit too, Carl Jung, about how uh, the feelings, he says emotions by themselves uh, are difficult to work with. What you have to do is find out what they're about. And you find that out by developing their stories. James Selman wrote a beautiful book called um, uh, Fictions on Fictions. I can't remember the name of it now. Anyway, uh, uh, about fictions, how a case, case history has fictions. And um, that his idea is similar to Jung's, that, uh, that what, what we need are images so that the symptoms we're looking at have a background that is poetic and that that's what we can enter into because we we see the stories and the poetry of it all. Yes, I would love to know more about that. And um, it is within one of my questions. Um, but I like to start my next question by reading these sentences from James Hillman, which you just mentioned his name as well, the American psychologist whom I know you are good friends with and shared a lot of ideas about different things. He said, one of the key diagnostic criteria of depression is feeling depressed most of the day, nearly every day for at least two weeks. We have to notice the manic nature of that diagnosis that 
Anything which lasts more than two weeks in our culture is too long. This is a totally manic situation, he said. Underlying depression is an adaptation to the underlying condition of the world, and depression can be an appropriate response to the world we live in, Hillman explains. So this idea that depression can be an appropriate response to the condition of the world is really thought-provoking. And I'm curious to know, what is it about the 21st century that you think is attributing to create depression in people? Because according to World Health Organization, at least 5% of the world's population is depressed. So what, do you, what is depression then? I, I would call it loss of soul. So uh, when I... Uh, when I had written Care of the Soul, what I wanted to do after that was write a series of books that would explore these various themes that I brought up. So I wrote a book later called Dark Nights of the Soul. And I used that phrase as, a, as an alternative for depression. That, that instead of talking about depression, the word itself is part of our, comes out of our clinical way of looking at things. And I didn't think we could, I still don't think we can use that word without it's sounding like a diagnosis rather than a, a, a way of being in the world, which Helmut is referring to there. Anyone who lives in the 20th century and is not depressed about it is is in bad shape. You know, you need your. We need to feel depressed about so many of things that have happened. But actually, when when I look at it, I I see something else though, and what I see is that depression then is not some disease that gets a hold of us like you know like uh measles or something that we catch it's not that kind of a thing uh depression is uh it is a response to the world we live in and i think it's a particular response to the loss of soul in our world i mean that very concretely that a world that would have more soul would would be more communal. People would be able to take care of each other and not have enemies everywhere and not be narcissistic and filled with self-interest. Uh, but we could, as I say, be more communal. Community is a very important aspect of life, a soulful life. And also we would have a good relationship to the natural world. Uh, we would we would value the natural world very much, and today we're just we're killing our planet without any sense of what we're doing, among other things that we're doing. Um, we are allowing uh, animal species to disappear uh, at a rapid rate, as though it doesn't mean anything to us. We don't even know what animals are there for. We don't understand the importance of animals in our life. And we're allowing them to disappear without worrying about it. This is all soullessness, as far as I can see. And when soul seeps out of your heart, you get depressed. Because soul is the source of your vitality and your identity. It's very important to have that soulful life and to live soulfully. Not just It's not an idea. It means live in a neighborhood with other people and get along with them and, have, and live in a marriage where you can work out the difficulties and stay with the, the marriage and, <clears throat> and, and really care for children, have a big heart for children. That's all soul stuff. And when that vanishes, you get depressed. So the 21st century is difficult. It's difficult to avoid depression, whether it's the kind that is, that is kind of expected because of the way we're living, or the kind that is that uh, is like almost like an illness because of the sick society that we live in. Yes, you explained some really important points there that are really helpful. And um, you've also mentioned earlier that the word psychotherapy consists of uh, two Greek words, the psyche, which means the soul, and therapy, which means care. So by definition, they literally mean care of the soul. 
But considering this definition of the psychotherapy, where do you think we stand today with our modern therapies and psychologies? Well, if you look at the last thing I read was that the majority, the great majority of psychiatrists have moved from talking, talk-centered therapy to dispensing medications. If that's the case, that's a tremendous loss because it's the talk that engages the soul and can lead to a deep, a deep uh, way of loving life and seeing your own role in life and having a reason to live. Uh, so uh, that part, that kind of psychotherapy, and that that if that is true, and I, it must be, I think it must be true. Um, that is really a bad sign for psychotherapy. The other thing is that I I do meet some therapists, not a lot, but I mean, I used to teach a lot of therapists. And so that's when I really got to know them. And many are taught uh, in ways that are, I think, too, um, too closely defined. Like they get these definitions and we have the DSM-5, which is a, a compilation of disorders with numbers for each of them. And we have to give a, if you're a therapist, you have to give a number to the to your client's problem, so the insurance companies can pay you for it. Um, that is absurd, you know. It's absurd to have a, to quantify or to have a, you know use numbers for people. That is 1984, uh, the novel that described this kind of a future for us. Mm -hmm. And so, the alternative is a a therapy that is what we might call a depth psychology or a depth therapy, uh, which is based on talk, uh, talk between people. And um, I've I've published a book. One of my recent book is called Soul Therapy, where I explore what I think a therapy could be. And uh, it is it is of course based on not only on talk but on a relationship and on establishing. I say establishing a certain level of friendship in uh, the therapy and uh, and also going deep. Uh, my work as a therapist is based almost, I'd say, 90% on dreams, on night dreams. So I've had to prepare myself all my life, early in my life especially, to know how to deal with images and dreams. To not to feel totally mystified by them, but to be able to know more about images. So when I'm given a dream, these days when I do therapy, um, and as I'm older, it seems so much easier than when I was younger. Uh, what I do is I, I I I hear a dream, I ask for a dream, and then as we talk about what's going on in life, the dream just automatically, naturally comes into the conversation. And so we have this dialogue where the dream is shaping our conversation a bit. And that's taking us deeper. And we, we're not interpreting the dream. That's kind of that modernist thing of modern life also, where we think we should interpret everything. You don't have to. You just have to be with it and get the insight from it all the time. I love that approach. And why do you think dreams are so important? Well, I think it's the therapists are the, probably the only people these days who pay serious attention to dream life. And here it is, we look at a human life. We are spending a third of our life in sleep, most of us, a third, eight hours of of you know of the day and sleep and it's not just it's not just unconsciousness and it's not just recovering your strength and all of that um it is we, we visit places we encounter people we encounter all kinds of interesting things they are not they are not like life they are more like fiction or like painting they're like the arts so going to to sleep at night Right away, we are we find ourselves in a place, maybe most of the time a place you've never been before, and you have things go that take place. Well, 
the I don't know anyone who, as I say, besides therapists who pay serious attention to this third of our life. And uh, the dreams are there. And I think that we, my sense, I'm pretty radical about it, is that our life experience is as much in the dream as it is in our waking life. What happens in dream is very, very important to us. We work things out. We encounter the world that we live in and our emotions during the day. Because our daily experience doesn't really show us the roots of our feeling and our reactions and our sense of meaning. But the dreams add a great deal to that. They take it deeper. And by having a conversation about your dream, you go much deeper into yourself. And it's like you live in this. You realize that we live, the poet Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke says, we live a two-tiered world. You know, the, the world of living and the world of the dead. The dead meaning that dream world means not, not the life world, but the, the, the dream world. And these two tiers relate to each other. And, and they, both can, they both make up the world in which we live. So that's how I see it. The dream is essential for the world. That's right. And here it comes the million dollar question. How do we care for the soul, especially if we are depressed? Uh, I think what you can do when you're depressed uh, for caring for your soul is to allow yourself, this is what's true of any symptom, allow it some time. Understand clearly you don't want this to be in your life forever, but give it some time. Uh, that quote from Helmut was about two weeks. I, I probably would say you need more than two weeks to, to really get there. Uh, I would say give, give yourself some time, not any particular length of time, and say, okay, I'm, well, I'm depressed then. I'm going to go to a therapist who will honor my depression, who will not try to take it away from me but we'll try to hold it and explore it with me. And uh, if you do that, I think that uh, you have a good chance then of being liberated from the weight of that depression. I think it can be curative if you do that. This, As I say, this is an old, old idea. It's not mine. I, I, I've read about this approach in the 15th century at least. So... Um, we can do that, and uh, and then you have to might have to deal with happiness. You know, happiness is not not the greatest thing all the time. Some people are too happy all the. Hillman used to say that. He said, "The trouble with people who live here, where I am in America, is that we're too happy." I don't know if you notice that or not. If you come to America, that people seem overly cheerful sometimes. I have noticed oh, yeah. the media or like self-help books that there is so much emphasis on happiness, being happy as if, you know, that's the ultimate goal yeah. of life. Yeah, happiness, you know, it's in our, our uh, constitution, our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. So um, that could be a, a burden as well because we need we need range in our emotions, we need range. So when we're stuck on any particular thing, it gets to be stuck and it's not moving us. The psyche seems to like to move, although the moments of stillness and stuckness can be valuable. In general, the psyche seems to like to move and you know, you're not in the same place all the time. And uh, your life is different because it has all these different uh, phases. I, by the way, I'm not one who likes the idea of uh, 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 the midpoint of life, of having two pa two parts of life. I, it seems to me that we are going through many, many phases all the time. And I don't like to think of it as, uh, uh, you know, 50% on each side. Uh, and if we could see that, that we are moving, going through, I think there are initiations, passages, all the time, passages having to deal with something emotionally or a relationship or something. And then you get through that. And then you are a deeper person because of it. You've come somewhere because of that. You go through these passages. So um, 
that's a different way of looking at life. But I think it's, uh, if you think of it that way, then you don't demand so much from yourself. I think we're too hard on ourselves generally. And as a therapist, I'm not hard on people at all. I just say, oh yeah, I've been through that. You know, it's, 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 you don't have to be treated as some great tragedy that's happening just because you're going through a period of depression. Yes, that's a beautiful way of looking at it. Um, we don't have to panic if we are going through depression. We can start to get the help, but we can be aware that there is a reason that depression is in our lives and there's there are deeper reasons for it. I would like us to shed some light on something really interesting that I think in the psychology world it is very much less spoken of, but you have time and time again talked about it in your work. And that is the over exaggerated role of the developmental psychology and how we tend to associate most of our problems to our childhood and um, to refer to some excerpts from your book. You said many of us convince ourselves that we have certain troubles in our lives because of what happened to us in childhood. We take developmental psychology literally and blame our parents for everything we have become. Strongly influenced by developmental psychology, we assume we are ineluctably who we are because of the family in which we grow up. What if we thought of the family less as the determining influence by which we are formed and more as the raw material from which we can make a life? I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on this topic. It's one of my favorite topics. It's uh, not, not to be hard on developmental psychology. That's not what I enjoy, but I, I, I enjoy deliteralizing childhood. That is, uh, this is something I get from Carl Jung. Uh, in one of Jung's, uh, uh, by the way, I want to say uh, that I am not a Jungian analyst, not a Jungian psychologist. He's one of the influences in my life that's been very, very important, and I've studied him intensely. And for the past 25 years or so, I have lectured in many, many Jung societies and institutes. So I'm very at home with that, but I'm not a member. That's not the only thing for me. So um, just to say that, so might to clarify a little bit. Sure. But Jung has this wonderful essay called The Archetype of the Child. And uh, what he says in that essay is that when we have a dream, he uses dream as a model. And when we dream of our childhood, we dream of what it was like. We're back on our childhood. He says, that is not about your childhood. It's about the archetypal child. That is the, the child nature of who you are at times, or maybe all the time, but it comes out certain times, especially. And the child quality of the world in which we live. It's an archetype in that sense. It's an image. Uh, it's not actual childhood. He said, once you get into the realm of dream, or even talking about your childhood. You are talking now from where you are now, and that is a ch the child archetype. Hillman wrote an essay that I recommend the people to read called Abandoning the Child. A long essay, very easy to read, unusual for him, um, to read about uh, this archetypal child, where he makes that point over and over again. Let's not confuse childhood with this, this eternal child. It's like we are always a child. And that child nature of who we are can come into the foreground once in a while, then it recedes into the background. But we may feel like a child in certain circumstances. Or Jung says that the child appears in our thoughts or in our dreams, uh, especially when something new is happening in our life. Like this, this child is not, a, it's not our childhood. It's this new thing that's like a child that we've given birth to or that's being given birth to in us. Like, let's say you're starting a new job. You might expect to have dreams of your childhood then. Or even, and this is more difficult for people, I think, when you talk about your childhood and tell the stories of your childhood, 
you might think of that. This is, I'm talking now about something that I've got a recording of. You know, I have, this is, this is what actually happened in childhood. And this has influenced me like, like history would influence me directly and factually. But in our work, in archetypal psychology, we don't look at it that way. And Jung doesn't look at it that way. What we do, we look at it as, as not pertaining to the history, act the literal history in the past, but that history becomes the story of our life, our mythology. Mm -hmm. And we can dip into that, as in that passage you quoted from, from my work. Um, we can dip into it to be refreshed by it and directed by it. Um, but it's not going back into actual childhood. We are reviving the sense of the child and those things that begin in us and maybe a new start with, with us. So it's it's a different way of looking at uh, This is what uh, Hillman called the poetic basis of mind. It's more always trying to think more imagistically and poetically, metaphorically, rather than factually. So how would you work with childhood traumas? Uh, see, I, I would look at it as saying that the trauma, the trauma did not create uh, the condition of, of the adult. It's the trauma, it's the memory of the trauma and the the story of the trauma that is really what is significant. So just because a person has had a trauma doesn't mean they're going to be affected by life for that. Depends how you deal with it. And if you have a therapist who can appreciate what I just described as the kind of archetypal child, then you have a chance of, shedding that story that has been, the story is what has caused you pain uh, all these years. It's the remembrance, the story, memory. Hillman says memory is imagination. It's like when we remember something, we're really imagining it, we're picturing it. So that gives us the freedom to choose not to be, not to keep that story in our life forever, but to tweak it, to change it and gradually be freed of its uh, the burden that has placed on us because as though we are feeling that trauma again and again. Mm -hmm. That's really empowering. It's an empowering approach to have in therapy. Um, speaking of the soul, I'm curious to know what do you think about this digital age where everything is becoming digitalized and already we know that artificial intelligence or AI is replacing many of the humans' jobs and I think this will undoubtedly continue and I don't think this trend will change anytime soon. And I'd like to know your thoughts on how can we bring more soul into internet, into our lives at this age that everything is becoming digitalized. When, when I read about or hear about uh, concerns about AI these days, I mean, I can join that and I can say I have my concerns too. But it sounds very familiar. Uh, I heard it when television came in. I'm, you know, I'm advanced, advanced age myself now. So I was around when television uh, first appeared. And people were saying that it's going to ruin people's lives. And everyone's going to be staying at home watching television. There'll be no more life. And now that, you know, those fears don't seem quite valid. Uh, we've come a long way, gone through many different types of technology. And I feel myself that uh, I like so much of the technology that we develop. We can, I know for me, it, it allows my me to and my wife to be in touch with uh, our, our children when they're living in other parts of the world. My daughter lives in Ireland and we live in the United States. We can sit around and talk to her and watch her, see her. And it's not the same, but it's pretty good. It's a lot much better than when I first went to Europe um, and left my family. Uh, all we could do is have very expensive telephone calls every now and then. So this technology, I think, can be very soulful. It can actually contribute a great deal. Yeah. It does have its dangers because it can 
you can become absorbed in the, you know, uh, almost in it like television. Um, it, it uh, like a, a phone or a smartphone or a, or anything, any new technology can can become obsessive. Yeah, we 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 enjoy it so much, or we can do so much with it. But there's something about the screen and about being able to to control so much with it that that becomes a compulsion. Mm-hmm. But you know. You have a compulsion for anything. You can be compulsive about going to church. You know, I mean, it's 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 not it's not a bad thing. The thing itself doesn't have to be bad. It's our relationship to it. So I think the challenge is for us, all of us, always, to take the new technology and to bring it into our soulful environment, and and give it its place there, and it won't be obsessive and it won't be won't be too much. So it depends on how we use it. Yes, it does. Absolutely. It depends how we use it. Yes. I don't want to lose my computer for anything. I love writing. <laughs> don't take it away because technology is supposed to be bad for us. I've been asked in my life to give talks uh, against technology, and I always say, no, I won't do it. I don't think that's, 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 I think it's, it's silly to do that. Mm. This, is, this is our world. We are developing that way. What we need to do is to to make them and use them in such a way that they contribute to the soulful life. Absolutely. And I'm also excited to know about your new book. I was wondering if you could share some information about it. Uh, the new book is called uh, the, uh, I have it with me here. It's called The Eloquence of Silence. And the subtitle is Surprising Wisdom in Tales of Emptiness. Yeah, that's what it says. And uh, uh, it's it's about emptiness, essentially. Silence is a kind of emptiness. But the book itself is mainly about emptiness. Silence is a way of being empty, too. Uh, this comes out of Eastern religions and, and philosophies, like Zen Buddhism, the religions of India, and Taoism in China. They all talk about emptiness. Uh, Sufism, too, has a concept, a word for emptiness. And um, so it's it's a widely accepted idea that our lives have to have a certain quality of positive emptiness in them. And this is a very positive concept. It would be in a very simple way, and I tried to make it very clear and, and somewhat simple in this book, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't want to lose the subtlety of the original teachings, but it's there very practically too. For example, um, you know, our schedules are just so so full of these days. Everyone seems to say they're busy. That's an indication that we need some emptying there. Some emptying maybe in our time just to allow a little bit of space so that we can have time for to allow things to happen and for people who who are not part of our busy active life but are important to us. That's one way. Uh, just clearing off your desk or your table, cleaning up your house, all of that can give you a different way of being in the world. But that's only the the physical way of doing emptiness. Uh, Another way would be uh, to be really clear in your conversation so that you're not manipulating people as you talk to them. You're not not having all these thoughts. You know what it's like to talk to somebody and you you can tell that they're thinking all these thoughts as they talk to you and they're manipulating or they're trying to control things or doing different things. Like maybe, or or we might think and we're talking to somebody, do they like me? Do they approve of what I'm saying? Am I coming across well? Those kind of thoughts need to be emptied. And this is what uh, the teaching, the teaching is especially about our thoughts and our inner life as emptying it. Uh, having purity of intention more often, of being able to speak straight to somebody without having all kinds of indirect messages coming through. That kind of emptying, everything done with emptiness uh, is the goal of this book. And I'm finding, I'm absolutely surprised uh, that a lot of people are being drawn to this book and 
into the ideas yes. here. Because we all really need this concept in our lives. I guess. Absolutely. It sounds amazing. And I cannot wait to read that book. As we are approaching the end of this episode, I was wondering if you would like to add anything else. Well, uh, to me, uh, care of the soul, going back to our original topic, care of the soul, uh, is not a burden. It's not a burden. I think what's so important in life is to is to accent the positive things. Uh, well, I'm teaching a course now, and in that course, I tell people, you come to this course, our basic idea is friendship. We're going to be friends here. This is not school. No one's going to tell you what to do and, and criticize you or anything like that. This is friendship based on friendship and pleasure. And I think this is care of the soul. If we can understand that, that this is not learning to do something that we're going to have to berate ourselves for failing at or anything like that. This is a pleasurable activity. And that's what it's for, basically, to live a more deeply pleasurable life and to find joy. This is what the great religions teach. Uh, the Upanishads teach Ananda, they call it joy. The joy of living your life, of uh, being in tune with yourself, the deep joy that comes from that is the purpose. And that's my sense of care of the soul. It's try to find joy in life. So that's beautiful. I hope whoever is listening to this episode, definitely, uh, if they have not read your books, they should go and read them. Thank you so much, Thomas, for being on this podcast. You're truly one of the most influential and valuable thought leaders that we all need to learn from. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. And, um, you know, this is the way to talk about soul in a very good, easy conversation. That's right. Thank you. I would like to end this episode by reading these beautiful passages from one of Thomas More's books called Dark Nights of the Soul. Here I want to explore positive contributions of your dark nights, painful though they may be. I don't want to romanticize them or deny their dangers. I don't even want to suggest that you can always get through them. But I do see them as opportunities to be transformed from within in ways you could never imagine. A dark night is like Dante getting sleepy, wandering from his path, mindlessly sleeping into a cave. It is like Alice looking at the mirror and then going through it. It is like Odysseus being tossed by stormy waves and Tristan adrift without an oar. You don't choose a dark night for yourself. It is given to you. Your job is to get close to it and sift it for its gold. Thank you for being here and see you next time. Thank you.